Scott, we've come a long way. As Yet another the, step tonight. The the sound and making sure the fan is off. Fan is off. We've come a long way, but we got a long way to go. And a lot of people felt like they had a long way to go on a flight not too long ago, huh? That's true. <laughs> All right. So for the downbeat this week, we're gonna hear from Alfredo Rivera. Apparently, he had some issues on a flight that uh, he was attending. Actually, uh, I think the man he was attending to had the issues. Alfredo, <laughs> Alfredo had it covered. Let's take a listen here. I understand something. I'm a flight attendant. That means I attend the flights. Sometimes our job has us attending to crazy people. If you push us too far, you're gonna have to attend this ass Oh my God. You see, because on this particular flight, I'm sitting in a jump seat and I'm just looking at him like a damn fool. He's spitting and cussing and going crazy. I say, that's enough. I got up and I walked over there. And by the way, this man smelled like a pack of Marlboro cigarettes, uh, four <laughs> shots of Everclear alcohol and regret. So I know something's about to go down. At this point, he touching all over my coworker's breast. And where he fucked up at <laughs> is when he touched my titties. Because I don't play that. So what I okay. did is I took that okay. duct tape. Scott, said, we're doing all of this. We're doing all of this just to fly to Reno for the weekend or wherever people are going. Oh, that's why I haven't been on the planes. When they started seeing people are fighting and cutting up on the planes, I was like, ah, I'm okay. You know what? I'm even in, I'm even avoiding high traffic roads and interstates. Sure, because people, people are, not are okay. driving like garbage. They are. They are. People are not okay. Um but, you know, bravo to Alfredo Rivera. I yeah, mean, I want to know what flights he handles because I'll ride on those. <laughs> I mean, creating the culture. This was a moment that we all can just have something with in this just messed up situation that we continue to deal with. A moment of laughter, but this is um this is, you know, what we have to really get into when it comes to this situation most people would not have intervened most people would have just sat there and dealt with it it depends on the size of the person acting up if i would have intervened or not <laughs> and how much i've had to drink right sure because especially if you're business class you know you get those uh, those complimentary adult beverages but i feel like this is this is good i mean somebody colored outside of the line someone did what they have to do and now we have impact. We have to remember that there are people who get there to the airport early to pre-party. <laughs> so you think this was an alcohol issue? With Well, I mean, there's no way there's for us a, to know. But. No, but you can't deny that that wasn't a factor because he right. said he sounded like alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> Smelling so, like alcohol. Right. Everclear. <laughs> so that's a step above sterno. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, rubbing alcohol. But um, I, I was glad to see it. And I think about this a lot because I used to do it. And I know a lot of people now who go on and on and on about what they would do if they saw something going on. I'd right. go over and I'd get that guy. Armchair quarterback, as you say. But you know what happens when it actually faces them is their ass puckers up and they pee a little bit mm -hmm. and they don't say anything. Especially in the air on a flight. This is my thing. Yeah, where are you going to go? And, and we're, and we're going to, you know, connect this to music. So, Mr. Rivera, you have to admit, Scott, that he has empowered other flight attendants. I hope so. There are other flight attendants who are not going to put up with that shit because somebody has given the example of what can happen to you if you start to act up on an airplane. 
Is that what he said? That's what's going to happen. <laughs> he had that duct tape down. Okay. So when it comes to music, what if there were more people, conductors, musicians, teachers, proverbially doing that to the tradition? Okay, to the to the to the complex of traditional so-called classical music, we would see some movement. Would we not? People would be empowered, wouldn't they? With duct tape, though, <laughs> it depends on the class. It's going to be a lot of it's going to be a lot of duct tape. <laughs> Let's get started. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 111. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here. To the returning listeners, thank you so much for being a part of what has become a very important part of the ecosystem. We were talking about that uh, earlier over dinner today, Scott, how it's, it's so encouraging every week to see how Triloquy and its legs, its little hands are getting into more and more trouble across, <laughs> across the, <laughs> yeah. across the field. So thank you so much returning listeners for continuing to make that possible to the new listeners. Thank you for checking out this project. Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and takes it away from the opera house, from the concert hall and puts it out in the streets. We talk about classical music as we define an American classical tradition and tie that with what all y'all are talking about and reading and doing out here in this real life world. So we appreciate your being here. Triloquy is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds people who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. Thank you, Shuttleworth Foundation, for your support. I also want to give a huge shout out and thank you to the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication. I had the extreme honor of speaking on behalf of the podcast field in front of a distinguished panel of guests. We had a really incredible conversation as soon as that is available. I'll uh, pass that out um, and along. So thank you everyone for having me there. Scott, I had a couple of um, podcast guest features since the last time we recorded. So, Say more. Yeah, so a huge shout out to Catherine Langford, host of Finance and Affirmations podcast. We talk about uh, what we do here on Triloquy and how money plays a role into all that, how we have to uh, think about our own financial education. You know, mm. one of the things that Catherine got into with me uh, that I think is really interesting is how we all get a financial education before we realize we're getting a financial education. So I'm talking about the ways in which our parents saved or the ways in which they didn't save um, their reaction uh, to you when you're driving down the road and you want to stop at McDonald's, you know, that, mm. that, <laughs> that you got some McDonald's money, you know, that's the that's the black response so you're <laughs> right so you're talking more about learning by watching those around you than you are like getting an allowance and trying to build yourself a budget right, as a even, nine-year-old. Right, even before that, right, yeah, the, the way that yeah. the peripheral conversations of money play a role into the things we do. So huge shout-out to Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on Finance and Affirmations. I also want to give a shout-out to Dr. Darrell Cooper for having me on Fluency with Dr. Darrell Cooper on the iHeart Network 
radio uh oh, that's all, cool. all of that so uh, it was fun to uh talk to dr cooper there and um and and really share some more of the uh, affirmations and the ideas that we're spreading out on this podcast so we have an incredible uh guest today a two-part guest we're actually going to hear from Brittany mcneil both this week and next week more on that in a bit if you're here to um you know hear my reaction to miss heather mcdonald that's in the fourth movement so <laughs> You know, if you got to scroll ahead, if you, you know, do what you got to do, but <laughs> hit that 15 second fast forward, button. but we're, but, but we're going to save that for the fourth movement for now. We're going to go ahead and get started with movement one. Scott, the Delta variant is scary, ruining everything, ruining everything. Where are you on the mask conversation at this point? We're vaccinated. I'm just wearing it. Me I'm too. just wearing it. I mean, it's. <laughs> What? Like, what am I, I going to lose? I just don't have time. What am I going to lose by wearing the mask? And so many people have turned the mask conversation into something like political, you know, like wearing the mask is a, a bit of a performance at this point, um, you know, because I feel like most people wearing the mask and paying attention to it are the folks who are vaccinated. I'll give you an example of a conversation I had uh, visiting my dad two weeks ago. Yeah. Because he was trying to sort of feel me out as to where I was on it, you know? <laughs> Here and, we go. Yeah, go ahead. And he said, he said, man, I, having that cloth across your face and breathing that, breathing that, that carbon back in can't be good. And I said, Dad, your whole life, I have watched you sleep with the covers all the way up over your listen, head every listen. night. And you have lived to 86 years old. Mm, mm, mm. You're fine. I mean, shout, shout out to your dad living to 86, you know, because we've lost so many. We, especially in this last year, you know, so those of us who have been lucky enough to survive. And I use that word lucky intentionally because it's folks who died cooped up in their homes. Right. You know, so those of us who are lucky to survive, we at least have to think about, uh, you know, caring about each other in some way when the grim reaper shows up for my dad my dad will give it hell you <laughs> said they're gonna fight <laughs> right it's gonna they're gonna throw down well i mean you know beyond just the conversation there are real life even real musical um implications to the delta variant so um as uh, has been um in at least local news statewide news social media the lakes area music festival uh, here in Minnesota had to cancel the rest yeah. of what they had going on because they um, had a couple positive cases in the orchestra. I went up last weekend to uh, do some concert talks. I was supposed to go back this past weekend, but you know, I didn't because it was all canceled. Um, I don't know. I think it was the responsible take. There were some people that I saw that were sort of critical, like, Oh, well people are vaccinated and da da da. What does it matter? We can, you could ask the people in the audience to wear their mask and X, Y, and Z, but because this, you know, deadly variant is just going around. I, I, I felt like it was the responsible decision to pull the plug there. There are a lot of people who were counting on performances, people counting on money, especially, but sure. You know, what is it? What is a check when you in the coffin? And isn't there, like a Lambda variant that they're keeping an eye on as well. Oh my gosh. Seriously. All these variants. Yeah. That's what's going to get you. Oh, it's just time for me to stay at home again. I mean, (laughs) you know, uh, between avoiding the roads. Yeah. Avoiding flights. Yeah. Don't get on the airplane. You know, um, who knows what's going to happen in the bars. You know, I I have no idea after people get feeling, you know, feeling froggy and ready to take a jump. Exactly. Especially. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I've got a little bit of anxiety about 
societal reentry or if I'm developing agoraphobia. Sure. I don't know. I feel that because, like I said, there's not a lot of places I just want to be for too long away from home. We'll go hang out at your house. We actually were trying to begin to hang out at our uh, the bar that's around the corner from here, just establishing some more local roots. But, you know, like you said, the way folks act, it's just hard to want to be out and about. And then you got the Delta variant. So it is what it is. But I'll go ahead. And I was going to say there was a huge spike in. Uh, gun violence this past weekend yeah. too in Minneapolis. Because folks so are desperate. It's it's wild. Yeah. But I will give a sharp to Macron. Isn't isn't he the, uh, the man Macron? over in in France, uh-huh. uh, Monsieur Macron? He said, "Y'all got to show us your vaccination paper before you go anywhere." So I wanted to know what you thought about that. The result of of that uh, being implemented as we've seen, you know, this isn't new news really a few months in, but the result has been folks are getting vaccinated. So number one, y'all over there in France not getting vaccinated. So y'all need to get y'all self together. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they, they were just not going to get vaccinated until they could have, they couldn't go get the baguette or the, or the bottle of wine or whatever they do over there in France mm. with their berets and, and striped shirts. So yeah, as I, mean, I understand, there's but. a, there's a black market for vaccination cards now. Now, why would you pay oh $400 God. for a shot that is free? <laughs> <laughs> These people are just so afraid of, you know, they don't know what's in those baguettes that they're buying. Oh, they probably do better than we know what's in our food. But anyway, it worked. So folks are getting the vaccine. You mm. know, the vaccine rates are up. So what if we did that here? And you know my feelings. Get on a <laughs> Not for the people who are gluten free. No. Uh <laughs> the vaccine uh as far as having to show your card now they've they've introduced the idea in new york city i don't know if you saw that news like in new york city they're starting to say look if you want to come over up to the uh what's the name where they do the uh the basketball the madison square garden mm-hmm. and all that you have to show your papers now i feel a way about that phrase you know there are historical yep. implications about asking to show your papers and we are in unprecedented times i wonder what you think would you feel safe in a space knowing that everyone in there showed their papers is would that be enough for you to have the confidence to go see a movie for example maybe but still i'm also wondering about what my mental reaction to it is going to be if Mm. if if that is going to once i'm sitting in it i don't know um i'm fine with the idea of carrying around a vaccine id i've got the app on my phone Oh, you where know, you can show so, on your phone. Yeah. So what you oh, do is you do that. Right. So uh, I forget what the web, what, what the web address is, but we'll put it you, in the description. Right. So you put in um, the you, you take a picture of your driver's license mm-hmm. and you take a photo of uh, the vaccination card and it does something and it makes a QR code or something that you keep there on your phone. So then that way you don't have to be walking around with that paper card that is sure. too big to fit in your wallet. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's like the, on the office when they got new business cards as junior sales reps. I remember that. That yeah. were oversized. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what you're dealing what with. What about, Scott, I'm curious. What about the um, provide your paperwork for the good old, you know, for, for, for sexy times and for dating and things? Is that going to be the new norm? Show up to the blind date or to the first date by, you know, flashing your cards? <laughs> what, to be STI free? You mean? Uh, to be co- dealt COVID free or at least oh. vaccinated. Oh. 
Look at how your mind goes. Look at you. What? You're the one that brought it up. <laughs> no, but like, you know, how, how do you think this will, you know, impact the personal relationships we have with one another? I mean, let's let's even keep it from the strictly romantic. You have a coffee meeting with someone who's going to come into the studio and, and do X. Is it going to get to the point where instead of shaking hands, we're like, flashing our cards and then we're sitting down at the table are we becoming this That's dystopian good. future That's that good, maybe. We, we're imagining yeah like in uh, the film demolition man um i maybe maybe we'll have to have a lanyard <laughs> 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 so you can just sort of hold it up what about scannable tattoos, like a, on your wrist? Mm. You scan it, and that say that says you had your vaccine or whatever. I, I think there are probably some Jewish people that are going to take issue with that. Sure, with that yeah. idea. Sure, sure. Um, the last point about this, you know, Delta variant and everything that's going on in the news and the world with it. I'm curious about intercultural and intra cultural long-term impact so there are all sorts of communities out there that are still sort of split on the vaccine i'll I'll speak for the black folk that i'm around there are folks who are still not out here you know despite juvenile and manny fresh's best efforts Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) they are not doing it okay i see uh i told you last week i think we recorded it when Dell and i were driving down from brainerd there was an anti-vaccine billboard like saying, don't be bullied. So we have the rural whites, you know, out here uh, not getting the vaccine. And then some that are, of course. So, you know, moving forward, I wonder if you've thought much about how this can uh, impact the way that different communities work with other communities and the ways in which communities work within themselves. I feel like uh, uh, orchestral and uh, Western classical communities, you know, we're so ready to go perform or go do something. We're going to go get the vaccine. So that's one thing, but maybe the churches, the super Christian communities. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've seen those signs. Don't come in, uh, don't come in this church house with your mask on. We live by faith, not by fear, you know, all that stuff. So uh, you have those down in Tennessee, you know, when I was with the Knoxville symphony, we played churches like the symphony played churches all the time. But if we have churches who are anti-vax next to symphonies who are fully vaxxed, you know, so I'm, I'm just my, my, my mind is wandering in those places. I wonder if, you know, you've thought much about that sort mm. of long term impact. Yeah, uh, I was on the phone with my brother Alan over in Abu Dhabi recently, and we talked about some of this very thing mm. because, um, you know, he's conservative mm-hmm. and he also is flying back and forth from the Middle East frequently. Yeah. And he has to test, even though he is vaccinated, he still has to take a test yeah. before he can fly. And he told me that it doesn't bother him at all because growing up in an air force, and I, and this, and I agreed with him wholeheartedly sure. growing up in an, in an air force family and then him being in the military himself. Once you sign that line, you on that line, you're the government's. Yeah. And they are shot up with so many different inoculations. They probably got shots we ain't heard of. And they don't even, exactly. (laughs) And it depends on where you're going to. Yeah. You'll get different inoculations and you don't have a choice. My dad would say, if I see a line, I get in it. (laughs) (laughs) So, because whatever you've got, whatever they've got, you probably need it. Yeah. So, um, in that respect, I am baffled as to why um, you know, we, ha- we have a good track record so far. Um, 
99.97% of vaccinated people have never had a breakthrough yeah. case mm-hmm. of it. So I, and the FDA is going to be approving it very soon. Um, you I think can, they said the Pfizer. They're going to. Is it? Yeah. That's I got the, the Moderna, so maybe uh, yeah. I still will grow wings or something. I, <laughs> hopefully. I got the Pfizer too. <laughs> but, you know, there's uh, stories in the news today about uh, a church in Florida that had six members of its flock die from COVID. So they've turned, they've changed their tune. And it was announced that armed service personnel will be required to mm, have, the, wow. to have the, the vaccine. You know, your brother, um, taking all of those flights to and from the Middle East. I wish somebody would try it on the plane that he's on. <laughs> your, your brother's a, a, a big guy. He looks like he can fight. So I wish they would. <laughs> <laughs> you have to yeah, ask him what he thinks man. about uh, Mr. Rivera on the airplane and his <laughs> reaction to that. You'll have to update us with that uh, next week. <laughs> All right, we'll find, we'll find out. But, but anyway, so shout out to everyone who's been vaccinated. If you have not been vaccinated, get your life together and get a vaccine. Listen, I'm going to keep it real with y'all. I was sick after that second shot. Mm-hmm. I was very sick, but I am glad that I am better now and that I don't have to necessarily worry about dying just because I go over to the liquor store or something. So don't be afraid. Don't well, be afraid. Um, there are also places, uh, venues, music venues that are mandating um, yeah. that people attend either have proof of a negative test or their vaccination. And I have to give a shout out to Jason Isbell, who required that of uh, people attending his concerts mm-hmm. and he was actually on CNN today talking about how you know you you can't celebrate your freedoms if you're dead and he is you know Period. yeah he's losing a lot of people and he, you know he's from Alabama and there's a lot of people that look at him as a representative of alt country or or you know this um, particular brand of rock yeah, music community again right yeah and and they, they, they're telling him, stay in your lane, make music. Uh, I'm not buying any more of your records, all this. And he's like, go ahead, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, further shout out to Jason Isbell. If you're going to see his residency in October at the Ryman Theater in Nashville, uh, he has a woman of color opening up all of his shows there except for one. Amanda Shires, his wife, is going to open up one. Uh, Adia Victoria who we featured in Opus 93. Yeah, we'll get into her a little later today. Triloquy. Yeah, she's going Yeah, she's going to be opening up one of the shows. What, Did, is Jason Isbell sending you a check that I don't know about? I mean, you just gave us the full ad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. Maybe he will. Um, so, um, so again, you know, we sort of started out, you know, this thing by giving a shout out to uh, the Lakes Area Music Festival. Again, uh, Scott and Taylor up there are really doing phenomenal work and really trying and, you know, really actively trying to recontextualize programming and what it means to go to a concert. I'm sure in the future they're going to, um, I hope they consider uh, some some sort of show me your papers thing again. I, I'm not fully comfortable you know, with that phrase and I, I get the historical implications of anybody does, I do, and... I am tired of people dying. Uh, we, we, we gotta we gotta get out of we gotta get out of that. What if we had one card with different things on it that you're qualified for? One card vaccine, one card voter, one card gun owner, one card whatever. Okay, but see the um, what's what's the man on King of the Hill? Gribble, <laughs> Daryl Gribble, Dale, Dale. Uh, Gribble. You know how how close are we? To just the 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 mm-hmm. uh, the barcode the on our wrist, you know. Anyway, I'm not trying to 
listen, go get your vaccine. Y'all, y'all hear me. Okay. So, um, again, I want to, um, shout out Lake Sherry music festival. One of the pieces that they platformed, uh, when I was there the weekend before last was one by a composer named Jimmy Lopez Biedo. He has a, a, a large work called Fiesta. It really gets into the dance vibes of, um, everything around the world and sorts of puts it in an orchestral setting. The final movement of that is called techno. So we're going to listen to a little bit of techno by Jimmy Lopez Biedo to get us to our next accidental. Thing that I'm really intrigued by when it comes to Jimmy's music that I've had to learn in giving presentations for the Lakes Area Music Festival is uh, the connections that you can make globally. So Jimmy has um, ancestral uh, connections to Peru, but has been you know widely received and celebrated in Finland. But of course, you know has uh, connections and performances and music that uh, that's tied to uh, the culture of the United States, you know, and broader America culture so you know I, I feel like you know we're we're getting there with some of the groups really finding these composers who speak to something that may you know from their perspective from some people's perspective be on the outside but still representative of a of a people and a future that can really get all of this orchestral stuff to survive so mm. huge shout out to Jimmy Lopez Bellido I hope that uh, his music begins to you know make it through the Make it through the proper channels up there at your job so that you can give them a shout out. Sure. The, the things that you're allowed to play. But anyway, <laughs> uh, with, with the with, with one of the sort of sub themes of this opus being folks on the outside, folks doing things a little bit differently, not, you know, not by tradition. Uh, I wanted to bring in, um, you know, somebody that you stand, Scott. I, I, I found an article. This was dated from uh, back in September, so almost a year ago. But uh, it's by um, David Tabachman uh, in defense of. Steely Dan. I'm gonna read a little bit of again this. a problem with the head with the with the headline. Also, oh, you want to stop right there. <laughs> there is no need to defend Steely let me, Dan. Let, let me read a little bit of this, and then we'll get into it. So it says, if you're a Steely Dan fan, you've heard the complaints. Their yep. music is sterile. The records are fussy and elitist. Mm -hmm. It's elevator music, bourgeois, the opposite of rock and roll, Man. or the most cutting criticism of all, smooth jazz. Okay, <laughs> Scott. Give us some context around the conversation of Steely Dan. Again, we're talking about folks on the outside, folks who do things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Is that how people think of this band, this this group? I do think that it is one of the more polarizing bands out there. Okay. You know, it's right up there with, um, uh, you know, they say that you can separate the world in half between Rolling Stones fans and Beatles fans. Right. Uh, you can, there's other people that say you can separate them between those who love Steely Dan and those who hate it. Yeah. And there isn't a whole lot of gray area in between. Sure. But um, for me, it was uh, part of a world that I only had 
a window into, meaning that it was my older brothers that were lis- listening to the music. Mm-hmm. And if I heard it, that usually meant that I was getting to hang out in their room. Sure. And they did not sugarcoat, whenever they would talk to me about the lyrics, they didn't sugarcoat what it was. Mm-hmm. There was one night when I was out with my brother and they uh, Steely Dan's talking about uh, tonight when we chase the dragon. And I looked over and I said, what is that? Why are they going to chase a dragon? He says, well, that means that that's just smoking heroin. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I was expecting you to say marijuana. Wait a minute. (laughs) You caught me off guard. Yeah. (laughs) But um, also. So you're saying the subject matter, the rock and roll subject matter is there. It was on full display. But the feel of it or the delivery of it isn't so hardcore, wasn't so hardcore. Very poetic and veiled in sort of inside jokes. Or, um, you know, it makes you feel like you're hanging out with people who know just a little bit more than you and you're trying to go along with sure. them to, just to be down. Yeah. You know, so what I hear you saying is that being innovative means you have to completely switch up the aesthetic or if not completely switch up the aesthetic, the approach, the you know, approach. I'll, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll post the article in there. One of the things that. You know, I was really intrigued by and the, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it in is because not only did they innovate the sound, they innovated the entire process. They didn't have uh, and it, it even says so in the article, they didn't have top tier musicians, you know, especially in the beginning. They weren't in these fancy studios. Right. They were doing the best they can and they stuck to their guns. And look what happened. We have dads on yachts all around the world. <laughs> Who just cannot get enough. Wait a minute. So I'm a childless dad in a bucket, I guess. Proverbial dads and proverbial yachts. So the work of Steely Dan has made it, you know, even beyond the so-called dad rock. The way that they have innovated their genre Mm -hmm. has spread out even beyond that. Uh, the The number one example that I think people may recognize is this tune called Black Cow. So we know that, you know, Peter Gunn's Nim sampled this back in the day. Mm-hmm. How about you tell me more about this song, the original? Like, what, what, where were you? What, what's, the, what's the feel? Give me the vibe. Listen to this line. I saw you in Rudy's. You were very high. Oh, okay. What high? <laughs> okay, so for me it was an education on several different levels mm-hmm. because i'm i'm learning about the music the different members of the band and their names and i'm also getting a treatise on casual drug use sure sure and this album uh asia from 1977 is a concept in production because this wasn't done in a studio they had rented a house yeah and so you got a commune really yeah and if, and talking about an open exchange of ideas they were bringing in different soloists to play on different tracks so uh i think the article even points this out that on every single track within that you've got a different band yeah on yeah. that album now this is my thing though when again as i mentioned when peter guns and them let me let me uh let me look at and, and say everyone but when uh the hip-hop song was sampled Steely Dan them got all the money, and I and I sent you a, a an interview that you know where mm-hmm. where they're we're talking about. Let me look up uh, these folks real quick. Hold on. 
Yeah, Lord Tariq and Peter Gunn's Deja Vu Uptown Baby. That's the name that's the name of the tune. I'll put that in the uh Triloquy tracks. When they sampled that, Steely Dan was like, Oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Y'all can use it, but I get all we get all of the residuals. So every time it's played, we get that money. So it's this tune that most hip hop I would say any, you know, person who really understands and has been there for hip hop and knows the history, they know that sample. We all know that sample, but we know, you know, it as something well we know it despite the fact that hip hop did not you know monetarily get anything from it so i, I guess the the point i'm trying why to, did they agree to that deal if steely dan got all because of it. it was already a hit i think they oh. used i think they used it before asking you know like Shazza. like 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 i do sometimes here on triloquy no <laughs> no, no you don't <laughs> No, you don't. No, yeah, I, I yeah, I, Not I, I one make time. sure I make sure my dot, my my <laughs> eyes are dotted and t's are crossed. But and we know the rules of length and all that anyway. Um, so with Steely Dan really innovating their own corner of the music world, they were able to have impact other places. And I think that again, as we talk about really being outspoken and coloring outside of the lines and not being afraid to really exist on the outside the possibilities are limitless. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. it, we, we could even impact things beyond Western classical if we could really just, you know, dig into some of that Steely Dan energy. So if you don't know Steely Dan, go check him out. I lost, I uh, lost the link here, but what's the song that you were, we were talking about uh, the black bassist just giving it up. That is on the track peg. Um, and if you go to, uh, I'm sure that Garrett will include the link too, but um, the man playing the bass is, responsible for the way that you hear it now because that was his his idea was to play the bass line in it with some slap mm -hmm. and they were like no 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 that's that's too on the nose it's too now whatever you know it, they didn't know if slap was going to be a fad right right and the guy just sort of turned away and and you know played a little bit of slap and now we got slap yeah let's listen to a little and it slaps Rainy on the bass. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to include the link where he's talking about what happened. But as you said, they didn't want him to play uh, slapped bass. And he was like, all right, and just turned around because they didn't hear it. <laughs> they just were looking at his fingers, trying to police his musicianship in that way. And, oh, and, thank, good, and, uh, and thank goodness he said, no, fuck y'all. I'm going to play it the way I want. And now we have a hit. Like I said, the dads on the yachts all around the world have something to think about. Or, you know, have something to groove to. And I got to find some <laughs> proverbial yacht. No, but, you know, let's all take a cue from them in creating our music. You know, I'm thinking a lot about new music these days. When we create our music and create our new sounds, you know, especially when we're in collaboration, stick to your guns, stick to your Peter guns <laughs> mm. and really make the music do the process the way you think is good, because that's what makes it yours. And and I think uh, we owe we owe that uh you know, to ourselves. So shout out to Steely Dan for being one classic, classical example of that. I hope nobody over there is racist. Don't let me find out that y'all racist over there, Steely Dan, okay? <laughs> me neither. <laughs> I don't want to find that out. Okay. Um, the last accidental. Is this the last one? Yeah, the last accidental I want to throw out this week. 
Scott, I am, I hate to do it. I hate to do it, but I have to give it a flat. Uh-oh. What are we talking about? Okay, so I was invited to the pre-screening of a film last um. week. It's a film called Annette. So I'm not giving a flat to the people who invited me, y'all. Thank you for the invite. But, you, you know, you invited us so that we could see the movie and, and let y'all know what we thought. And that's what I did. And I'm letting my audience know. So there's a new movie out called Annette. I'm going to read. Um, this is a New York Times review. It says Annette is a musical about the ill starred romance between two artists, a description that suggests obvious kinship with La La Land and A Star is Born. Not to play algorithm or anything, but if you like those movies, you will probably like this one, too. Or Maybe not. While it belongs more or less to the durable genre of backstage musical, Annette aims to be something darker and stranger than another angsty melodrama about the entanglements of ambition and love. I'll let y'all read the rest of that. Um, This article, the New York Times describes it as a musical, but it is very obviously drawn from the tradition of opera, not only in the way that the music is performed, but one of the characters is an opera singer. You know, this article described them both as operas. Um, Adam Driver's uh, character is um, a comedian and uh, the woman who plays Henry McHenry. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a comical name. And the woman who plays uh, Anne Marion Cotillard, she uh, is an opera singer. So, and then you have the opera chorus throughout. Sometimes mm. they're the crowd of the of of the uh, the comic you know room. Uh, sometimes the the chorus uh, is the press. You know, like mm. so, it's very much drawn from opera. But I had to give it a flat because for me, the story wasn't all that compelling. I felt like uh, the folks behind this film thought to themselves, you know what, if we made a movie musical and really aimed it toward classical music people, toward the opera fans, that could really get them into that. And I get that, but the story has to be there. You know, we have... So it uh, wasn't an operatic story. Well, I, I think the it was very much an operatic story, but I felt like more energy went into the production. There were live, uh, there were live orchestras, hmm. you know, throughout it all. There were, um, you know, all sort of great music and and that sort of thing. Elaborate sets, you know. The 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 climax of the movie is a a ship uh, at sea in the storm, and the two main characters are dancing on the deck, you know, in the storm. So the way that they do that, you could tell that is high budget, but it is yes, as you roll your eyes and breathe in also kind of yeah that's that that is what it is so you know I I give it the flat because I want us to think about when we talk about uh you know cross-pollination in art um to get new audiences into something else or or vice versa we we have to make sure that the story is there I mean that's not a story that most people can really relate to when it comes to a famous opera singer and a and a famous comedian and you know this celebrity love and x y and z it's not 2002 anymore this we are not a brangelina people anymore you know mm-hmm. so to translate that into a movie meant to attract you know classical music and opera folks like me out there i'm sorry i mean again i appreciated the invite but I didn't love the movie itself. Now, I will say that the performances 
were really phenomenal. Adam Driver gave it up. I mean, not every actor, as you can speak to, is comfortable taking a musical role, you know, singing oh. for, you know, a couple hours on end in front of, you know, that's not something everyone wants to do. But also just the, the non-singing portions were, were really intriguing. So, you know, I, I definitely have to, you know, applaud him for that. Also in this film was uh, Simon Helberg. If, if folks watch The Big Bang Theory, you'll know who he was. He was like the shorter uh, Jewish nerd. Um, in that show he played the role of like the conductor and the accompanying uh, pianist and he's obviously a musician so it was great to uh, see his musicianship and see all of that but I don't know when it comes to this cross-cultural stuff we gotta we gotta figure out a way to really um, engage today's people people who can be intrigued by a story I wonder Scott you know when it comes to being uh, roped in by a really compelling story uh, and, you know, we've already talked about the Delta variant and all that stuff. What are you looking for when it comes to getting you into a movie theater or even, you know, if the movie is trying to entice you to go into the opera theater or the uh, straight theater? What sort of things do you need to see? Do you need to see the fireworks on on, on the stage? Like, do you does does is is it the production that's going to get you to put your mask on and go sit in the crowd uh a comp the idea of a compelling story what are you looking for absolutely the story yeah and if it could be uh, I, i've always been a fan of the smaller venues the more okay. uh, what they call intimate venues sure. i guess mm -hmm. i like to be like where you could sit and untie the the actor's shoelaces mm. you know i want to be sitting right there and watching a committed performance somebody yeah. really give everything yeah leave nothing on the table yeah and and i feel like when we think about writing these stories and presenting these new stories for the new opera stage the new movie screen or whatever there has to be a way for folks to see themselves in it we've we've started this sort of tradition you know on triloquy mondays um, to watch the latest episode of Rick and Morty, mm -hmm. excuse me, of Rick and Morty, mm -hmm. uh, be before we, uh, come up and this last one, I'm not going to, we're not going to spend time talking about it or anything, but the, the, the episode we watched tonight, the thought that I had, it even teared me up a little bit when we got done watching, it made me think about sometimes the person or the thing in my case that you really genuinely fall in love with lets you down disappoint you i feel like um so many of us we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more in the triloquy in the fourth movement but so many of us fell in love with music with western classical music based on some field trip or, or some recording that someone shared or maybe even some moment on the radio that you heard or whatever and you know you fall in love with this thing you dedicate your life to it you marry it and then, you know, certain circumstances, you know, let you down and, and you're sort of on, on the outside trying to figure it out. So, you know, what we my point is the the episode of Rick and Morty we watch was not about that, obviously, but that's what I was able to pull from it. So, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, I hope that, you know, the screen uh, writers and the librettists and even the performers will sort of think about that because, you know, with this movie, Annette, I didn't really see the connection to the story. I very much felt like an audience member. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, even better if an audience member can feel like they're involved in some way. Maybe those smaller, intimate theaters play a role in that, you know. But, Relatable characters, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I want people to see it because, you know, my opinion is just my opinion. It's going to be streaming on Amazon, I think, on 
August 20th, I think. Uh, the uh, It's in the theaters now. So if you want to put your mask on again and go to the theaters uh, in your city, it's there. So definitely go see it. The movie wasn't exactly my jam, but it definitely inspired some uh, really great conversation between me and Dell on the way home. It's gotten me thinking about uh, peripheral art forms that might be able to get folks into the opera house or, or these other places and, hmm. and, and everything in between. So... Uh, to get us into the second movement, I have, I'm actually going to share a little bit of music uh, from this movie, Annette. So uh, it starts with a tune called So May We Start. And you said that this, you know, actually had you sort of uh, yeah, you more excited showed, about the film. You should have showed me this <laughs> rather than the one that you did. All right. So let's listen to a little bit of So May We Start to get us to our second movement. One, two, three, four. It's time to start My time to start They hope that it goes the way It's supposed to go There's fear in them all But they can't let it show They're underprepared Do uh, you know Sparks? Do you know Sparks? That that, that track of feature, it says um, Sparks performed by Sparks, Adam Driver, Miriam Cotillard, and Simon Hilberg. Yeah, the Sparks were around in the early 80s. Okay, so so yeah, so shout out to them. So they're they're reaching to that audience, I guess. Did they you know? get, just quick sidebar, did they get into it all why the backup singers were in lingerie? Well, and that's the, as, as we were watching that clip again, I was thinking to myself, maybe, you know, I know I gave it a flat, but maybe I should go back and watch because there's symbolism all throughout it. So those background singers show up in Adam Driver's character's um, comedy routine. He has like musicians on stage and they're still in the nightgowns and he, mm. per he performs in a bath robe mm. and, and house slippers. So, you know, and you know, the, the leading, uh, the leading lady, uh, and she only eat the only time you see her eating, she's eating apples, you know, and they're apples. So the, there's the symbolism of opera and the deep conversations there. But I don't know, for me, just something didn't quite connect. And I think it's just uh, the characters weren't exactly relatable. We love to see Adam Driver. I love to see Adam Driver a little, a little shirtless. Where's my piano? Because mm -hmm. he looks all right. <laughs> but, you know, that isn't a, that, that's not going to be enough to you know, get us, or maybe it will be enough to get some folks in the opera house. Speaking of people's uh, bodies looking all right, I'm sorry to um, objectify the Olympic sports, but the Twin Cities has another um, gold medal. The wrestling. Yeah, huge shout out to Gable Steveson for um, bringing back the gold. Did it say the gold? I don't want to, yeah, uh, gold medal. So, you know, two gold medals here in the Twin Cities. His, uh, his opposition was definitely I at the Olympics, you know, but let's, let's not, let's not be problematic. Let's not <laughs> objectify the other men playing their sports. That's the last <laughs> thing we need. That's exactly what we need to worry about as a society, objectifying cishet men, right? Mm, anyway, 
movement two. We're here in the second movement on this podcast called Triloquy. That's what the title is. Uh, in the second movement, we take the second ending. We take a tune that we've been repeating and repeating and repeating all week and take the second ending, give some context around why we were repeating it, why it moved us so much. How about you? Um, How about you go first this week, Scott? What you got? I struggled. I struggled this last week, man. Yeah. Um, myself and a few friends, uh, I'm hearing a lot of people saying a lot of what I'm thinking in my mind. Um, this, what is the point? You know, what, where are we? We're on this deck of a ship in the middle of a storm and mm-hmm. we're, and we're trying to tell people to dance and, right. and be frivolous and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the overall theme of the last week was nihilism. Okay. And, I was starting to try to research nihilist composers to see. If, <laughs> wow. And, you know, that led me down all sorts of paths, you know, with Nietzsche and Wagner and all yep. that, which, you know, I don't need to go that mm-hmm. direction. Um, there was a, a gentleman named Matt Marks who uh, died unexpectedly in 2018. But uh, I only just discovered his music. He wrote what he called a, uh, a post christian nihilist pop opera this is a lot <laughs> yeah but you see the the thing is is that I, I i really couldn't grab onto anything in that release but he is part of uh was part of a group called alarm will sound mm-hmm. and it's a group of uh, you know it sort of reminds me of what judd greenstein does with uh the now ensemble yeah. you know it's a, a sort of a rotating cast of of people and uh, not unlike what steely dan with did with recording asia you know just yeah. lots of people involved and i found an album that they did of music by aphex twin where they did their own arrangements of it and you know um it fit with sort of the attitude of where are we going what's happening uh log on rock Witch, uh gives you a little bit of a reverence in the uh, in that release there if you could hit that one for us <laughs> one thing in there that you can focus on but there's all sorts of scattered things going on around yeah which feels like my life right now like I'm trying to <laughs> like I'm trying to focus on this one thing and I've got all of these things that are taking attention from different directions and then all of a sudden that whoop comes in as like a little bit of silliness yeah yeah and uh, the track that really moved me though that I listened to several times is called finger bib and it it was that moment of sort of uh, the the release that you get, the laughter that you have where you're almost in tears, you know. hear this i hear walking down the street you know maybe walking through the park and you're making it like you're just making it and the sun is shining but there's still that stuff yeah in the back you're gonna your have mind. to get up and do it tomorrow yeah yeah mm-hmm. i don't i is there a lesson in it i don't know i'm not trying to say that it did anything for me i still feel anxious yeah but 
Um, None, nonetheless, it's really great music, and it's music that's outside of the lines and music I'm into. There's that orchestral component to it, but they've added the drum kit. Yep, yep. I know everyone's afraid of drums, but <laughs> not everyone in all instances. Listen to a little bit more of this. I feel like there might have been, it gives me the aesthetic of found instruments, you know, or maybe somebody found one of those old guitars that you give to a one-year-old that you turn the crank on the side yeah. and it plays Pop Goes the Weasel or something like that. Yeah. They've, uh, they've got an interesting release there. It's uh, Acoustica with music of Aphex Twin. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you. Uh, sure. thank, you for, thank you for sharing that. Well, you know, you're, you're talking about anxiety and, and different feelings. So uh, there was a tune that uh, came out last week that I really heard in the right moment. So, you know, the classic, the foundational artist to hip hop Nas, he came out with King Disease 2 last week. He uh, part one. Uh, and I think we actually talked about it a little bit on Triloquy last year. But um, uh, so he, he put out, you know, the, the second part to this album. I mean, it, Every track on there is really incredible. There are multiple tracks that hit me in a specific way. And, you know, when, when I when I saw that it was released, I told myself, I'm just going to listen to this. I'm just mm. going to listen to it back, back to front. So I put in my um, my shower pods and started <laughs> and then continued on as I went to the grocery store um, and all that. And uh, toward the uh, end of the album, there's a track called Nobody, where Nas is talking about what it might be like to go somewhere where he's nobody somewhere where he has everything he needs where everyone around him has everything he needs where no one is famous or or more privileged than anyone how we're just all here and what that might look like so i'm in my mood and my feelings hearing that and what that could mean and then i hear a verse by lauren hill the legendary lauren hill so i actually wanted to um share a little bit of that and then go through some of these lyrics. So here's a bit of Lauren Hill's verse from uh, Nobody by Nas. Some place to be. Some place you wouldn't know probably. Some place to be nobody. All my time is spent focused on my freedom now. Why would I join them when I know that I can beat them now? They put their words on me and they can eat them now. That's probably why they keep on telling me I'm needed now. They tried to box me out while taking what they want from me. I spent too many years living too uncomfortably. Making room for people who didn't like the labor, but wanted the spoils, greedy, selfish behavior. Let, let's, let's just stop right there. So going back to some of these lyrics, Lauren Hill says... Uh, let me let me go back here. Lauren Hill says, all my life has been focused on my freedom now. Why would I join him when I know that I can beat him now? OK, so a part of my feelings, you know, again, this this past week, um, as I get on, you know, the one year anniversary of my work in, independently, it's been hard work. It's been very gratifying work and it's been work that I'm so grateful that, you know, I've been able to do to keep me afloat and even more so, you know, just to really grow this project. But, you know, there I, I can't help but to feel sometimes that, you know, what would it be like if I were still a part of some institution? But, you know, why would why, why should I even spend that much time thinking about it when, 
you know, I have obviously lapped a lot of the people out here in the in the field, you know, when it mm. comes to impact, even when it when it comes to income. And that's not me bragging about nothing. That's just, you know, where where my mind was in that moment. You know, the other thing that um, she talks about um, in this verse, let me read. Um, they put their words on me and they can eat them now. That's probably why they keep on telling me I'm needed now. I share it with you. Um, one of the emails I got uh, this past week, we, we won't uh, go into it specifically, but it's interesting how people can keep you at arm's length, but still try to like get in uh, insights and, and uh, free consultation in essence from you, you know, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they don't actually want you to be a part of, you know, what they're doing. So, I don't know, in the way that, you know, you deal with your life and, and it manifests musically, this this was really a moment for me. I, I really appreciated being able to hear a legend. You know, first of all, we already talked about how legendary Nas is, but, uh, you know, Lauren, Miss Lauren Hill, you know, a, another legend, another woman who plays a classic role, a classical role in um, American music. So, I mean, he, he, hearing those things is is incredible for me. So I, I encourage everyone to go check out uh, King's Disease 2 by Nas, specifically the tune called Nobody featuring Miss Lauren Hill. Sort of reminded me of what Psalm 1 was yeah, talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Getting away. And, you know, I, I forget the other lyrics in that song, but, you know, sure, sometimes I just want to get away. I the, think is it's, what Psalm 1 right, was saying. Right. It's the, it's, it's the um, naming and forgiveness, naming and forgiveness. The, um, I rose above it, got past it. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear a little bit more of, of what Miss Lauren Hill had to say. You balanced it with clarity. I don't need to turn myself into a parody. I don't I don't do the shit you do for popularity. They clearly didn't understand when I said I get out, apparently. My awareness like Keanu in the Matrix. I'm saving souls and y'all complaining about my lateness. Now it's a now, come on, you know you, now, you, you like do to... need to show up on time to the show, at least within an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta love the matrix reference though oh yeah of course i mean but again look at what she said she said i don't do what you do for popularity i don't need to turn myself into a parody mm. you know it's so mm-hmm. many people out here even in um you know abolitionist spaces who have turned the work into just some trivial character that they play for the sake of a paycheck and not actually digging in and and seeking impact and seeking change so you know, uh, you know, I, we, we can sit here and talk about Lauren Hill forever. The the ways in which impact, um, and qua, uh, how can I say how qua, how quantity does not equal impact. How quality equals impact. This woman has one album. She put out one, you know, studio album anyway, and we're still talking about it. You put it, you put that vinyl on tonight. over dinner yeah. today, over tonight. So shout out to Miss Lauren Hill. Definitely go uh, take a listen to that track and stay on track. You know, I, she says again, I don't need to turn myself into a parody. Don't turn yourself into a parody for these people, because at the end of the day, they're just going to throw you out and ask you to, you know, consult and not actually, you know, anyway, we won't, we, we won't get into that. I'm not going to put all my business out there, but uh, mm. <laughs> so we're about to get into the third movement here. Uh, today's guest is Brittany McNeil. Brittany uh, has a really unique place in the arts ecosystem. Uh, I'm going to link her um, medium page in the description of this where uh, she describes herself as uh, I write I sing I teach I read I slay all day next week this is going to be a a two-parter next week in part b of my conversation with Brittany McNeil you're going to hear about her start um, not only in music but in journalism how she started on the journalism side 
stepped over into music and stepped back into journalism and back and forth and you know how she just um, exists in that you know part of the of the ecosystem you know we talk all about uh, all the time about oh who isn't a real journalist and who is just has opinion pieces and x y and z well Brittany McNeil has a lot of important opinions and she's a journalist who's really making a, a lot of change and a lot of waves out here we start the conversation Scott um, in reference to the idea of you know or the ideas that heather mcdonald puts into the article that we're going to get into in the fourth movement we sort of uh you know talk a little bit around that article and the idea of you know this work being rooted in black folks like me black folks uh like Brittany, not liking white people or some sort of reverse racism that can sort of be alleged when you get into the of the rhetoric that folks like Heather McDonald get into. So that's where we start the conversation. Um, reasons why that is not an important or useful part of the dialogue. And we just kind of uh, go on from there. So uh, I'm, I really appreciate Brittany McNeil for coming on. We talked for so long. Again, I couldn't fit it into one opus. So we're going to do a, a two-parter. So yeah. uh, to get us into um, my conversation with Brittany McNeil, we're going to hear a little bit from... Um, Adia Victoria. I'll let you talk a little bit about Adia Victoria on the other side of this um, interview, Scott. A uh, really important artist that I want to make sure that y'all are uh, y'all have your ears on as well. But uh, in the meantime, this is a tune by Adia Victoria called Magnolia Blues, and this is my conversation with Brittany McNeil. So I, I've been saying, and I, uh, for years now, and I'm and I'm seeing more people, um, more people say this phrase, although I don't know if they really mean it. That you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. You have to, and that's all of us. Like I'm not just asking others to do that. I'm doing it for myself. I'm challenging my own views. I'm trying to become more open-minded and thoughtful all the time. Like, I don't want to be the same person I was five years ago. Like, what right. is that? You know, I shouldn't want to be, I should want to be better. I should want to be constantly, you know, building and growing and evolving. Um, let's talk about that question or that, that issue specifically though, this idea of like, do you like white people? I think in 2021, like that's such a basic ass question to yeah. be asking anyone that is a person of color. Um, and I mean, a black person as it relates to me, um, but any person of color, honestly, like it's such a dumb thing to ask someone because the real question for me, if you look at me, a black woman and you say, I mean, do you hate white people? I'm going to say you're asking the wrong person the wrong question. Don't ask me if I hate white people. Ask white people why they hate me. Mm, That's there the we question are. that needs to be asked, right? Ask white people. Um, they, they hold this, this power and this privilege, right? And that doesn't mean no, not at all. But when we're talking about this from a systemic standpoint, when we're talking about this, um, you know, as far as 
asking marginalized people these questions about how they feel about those in a position of power uh, in, in, over them or in relation to them. What does that even mean? So if I, if I say yes or if I say no, what does that change, mm -hmm. right? If mm -hmm. I hate white people or if I love white people or if I'm indifferent, what does that change? Nothing, right? right. My feelings toward them are not the reason racism exists. Nothing that I as a black woman have you know, nothing that I've done, nothing that my ancestors have done, nothing that my descendants do will be the reason why racism does or does not exist. And so asking me how I feel about white people, what do you gain from that? Yeah, yeah. Well, what part of the conversation, again, when it comes to identity, should we be engaging? Because talking about white people is very different than talking about whiteness and the implications there. How do you think we need to uh, more, how can we more effectively approach the conversation when it comes to just using these hard terms, white folks, black folks? What do you see as our best path forward in just engaging the conversations therein? So there's like a fine line there, right? First of all, like I like talking about whiteness. There's there's a great exhibit um, at the National Museum of African American History and Culture on whiteness. It starts there, right? And mm. it it digs into whiteness in the sense of like going all the way back pre-slavery, going all the way back to slavery, going all the way back in, into people um, coming into America or being brought into America and how these boundaries were defined and then were changed, right? Because the boundaries of whiteness continue to change. Why? For the sake of oppression, which is why I say a lot um, that everything rests on anti-blackness, that the whole world rests on anti-blackness, right? And, and so much of that is because like, when you look at what whiteness is, they'll change the definition of whiteness, right? Sure. They'll change that. And as it, as it pertains to the foundation of America, like literal American history, the foundations of whiteness changed so mm -hmm. many times. And at the end of the day, what was that about? The exclusion of black people. That's fine. We'll let you in. We'll let you in. We'll let you in. Not y'all though. And it was always that, oh, y'all are getting a little too friendly. Come on, we'll let you in. So you don't get a little too friendly with them. Not y'all though. And so, you know, when we talk about, that's, that's why it's so important to talk about systems, right? Yeah. The fine line there is, people do need to be held responsible because at the end of the day, systems are made up of people. Institutions are made up of people. And right. I think we forget that all too often. Like when we start saying these words, institutional, systemic, systematic, we, we forget that these are people. So that's why I never listen when people say, oh, they're a product of their time. Like in slavery, they're a product of their time. Jim Crow, they were a product of their time. There's no time throughout history when there wasn't somebody doing the right thing. Right, exactly, exactly. So there's always been a choice. What side are you on? There has always been a choice. There were white abolitionists just like there were white slave owners. And that's not me boosting up white abolitionists, okay? Because that was the least they could do. And I really exactly. do mean the least. Yeah, that's um, a very important point. I mean, it is. But I say that to say... At any point when we're talking about any point in history, folks need to be held accountable for their actions because there's never been a point in history where it's like, oh, people just didn't know any better. That's not true. People knew better and they killed the folks who you know, spoke out against it and they 
And they and they were deliberate about about shutting those voices down at every point in history. So it is important that we talk about people and the role of people in upholding institutions, which is why we say so often, like you're upholding white supremacy. Like what does yeah. that mean? Because in your behaviors and your thoughts and your actions, you're upholding these systems. But it's also important to recognize what whiteness is, you know, to recognize these things as as I guess ideas or you know or ideals or whatever the case may be to recognize these different systems and these institutions when we say systems and institutions we use those words to refer to so many different things that people can get confused right, right. so we can be talking about actual institutions you know like colleges or companies or whatever we can be talking about institutions in the sense of um, systems like um, the prison, the industrial context, the, the um, complex, the military, and all of these different things. We can be talking about the government when we say systems, or we can be just talking about like a very broad sense of like systems of inequity or systems of injustice, or you know what I'm saying? But at the end of the day though, what are those things? They're, they're made up of people. So, right. you know, that's, I think that's why getting bogged down in like, getting bogged down in those things without starting to really dig into actionable items is always a lost cause. That's why we all find ourselves in meetings and on committees and task forces and all of these things for years and years on end without seeing the change we want. Cause we can sit around and decipher just the meaning of words for days, you know, yeah. months, not to mention then trying to put them into context historically or put them into context in a certain field, like in music, you know, or whatever. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I always say, um, I do not try to appeal to people. I try to appeal. I, I appeal to policies. I want to talk about policies. I want to talk about procedures. I want, when I, when I do this work in specific institutions, my goal is always let's deal with your policies let's mm -hmm. deal with what you can put down on paper let's deal with what you can uh the 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 numbers the metrics the policies the procedures that way any person that i like or or that i find to be receptive if they walk out the door tomorrow we've put in place policy mm -hmm. we've put in place procedure we've started to shift culture and so that it doesn't rely on any one person to uphold that thing no one person should be the contact or the the, the end-all be-all of an effort in any institution because that person can leave move on to a different job be fired die whatever mm -hmm. like people are fickle and life is funny and and so the idea should always be um, policies. I'm not worried about your heart because at the end of the day, that's a personal thing, right? That's a thing. You're going to do that or you aren't. You're going to do that work or you aren't. I can, I can talk to you about it. And um, if I want to uh, give of myself in that way, you know, to have heart to hearts and one-on-ones and all of that. But at the end of the day, like there's enough theory, there's enough history, there's enough research there are plenty of scholars. I think of myself as an intelligent person, but there are certainly folk who are smarter than me, who have done more research than me, whose work that I can reference. I can point you to all the things. I'm not going to say anything new, right? Mm -hmm. 
no matter how smart I think I am. I'm not going to say anything that hasn't been said by my ancestors, by our contemporaries, by people outside of music. So at the end of the day, what do I need to talk to you about really then? Policy. Yeah, yeah. When I think about that concept of systems and the maintenance of systems, specifically, you know, Western classical music systems here in the United States, I feel like it's so easy for people to, you know, uh, contextualize the arts as this benevolent, uh, uh, benevolent sort of problem free area, but um, the forces to maintain the system, and from my perspective, are becoming more and more obvious. You know, a lot of folks are talking about the um, Heather McDonald article today. You know, it names me and, and all sorts of other people. The part of the conversation that I think is really um, poignant when it comes to pieces like that is how quick we are to... Uh, sort of dismiss it as a fringe idea in, uh, in, the, in the classical music ecosystem, but I see it as central to the maintenance of it. You know, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on um, complicity in participating in these systems, you know, and, and again, back to the idea of radical honesty. Why is it so difficult for, you know, those of us, maybe let's even center the Black folks, those of us who have made it to identify the systems as such? It seems like for a successful, uh, let's say a successful Black opera singer who's made it to the Met, if she gets on stage somewhere and says classical music is racist, they'll act like she said something that was wrong. So I just saw um, that article like right before we we got up here to chat, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not even gonna pretend that I um, read the whole thing. You're not um, missing I much. This, <laughs> I, <laughs> I said this on, on social media. I said this um, when I saw it, I said, you know, I opened it and it was so long, like so unnecessarily long. And yeah. me, okay, a person who struggles with brevity, I, I get it. Like you, when you wanna get your point across, <laughs> you wanna get your point across. But <laughs> be saying something, right? Like have something to say. Don't write this long piece just so you can, you know, I mean, I guess you're not hearing yourself when you write, but, you know, just to be out there, right? To be to be heard, um, for lack of a better word. So first things first, we have to stop letting people get away with this idea that, um, and this is, this is going to rub some people the wrong way, but it is what it is. This is called uh, triloquy. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> we have to let people stop getting away with this idea that people are inherently good and mm. most people are good and, and there's just a little bad, right? Because history shows us that it's the other way around. <laughs> history shows yes. us that it's absolutely the other way around. People are not inherently good. When given the opportunity, folks will take advantage of others. They will use others to get along, to get by, to get up. They will step on other people. And we even see this. This is why, you know, I love Black people. I love Black women who introdu introduced us to the term intersectionality because it's this idea that, yes, you may be marginalized or oppressed in one way, but then you may have privilege in other areas, right? And so even in that, we see often marginalized people uh, like this white woman who could argue as a white woman, she is marginalized, who is going out of her way to marginalize and to dismiss the marginalization of others, right? Yeah. And so when I see that, that's the first thing. First things first is that you got to name a thing, right? You can't fix it if it ain't broke. You have to name a thing. So classical music is racist. Period. And that does not, it literally has nothing to do even 
with like the music itself. Like nobody's saying you have to hate Brahms. I love Brahms. I sure. love Michael, you know? Um, it nobody's saying you have to hate it. Nobody's saying that the art is not worthy, right? The art is the reason we're we're here. Um, but the idea of this, again, we go back to these words about systems and institutions and what does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. If she is not intelligent enough or thoughtful enough or, or caring enough to dig into that and have a complex conversation that isn't basic, that's her problem. I agree with you um, when you say it's, it's important not to dismiss that kind of rhetoric, right? for two reasons. One, because when you dismiss it and ignore it, you let it fester, right? Yep. You have to call a thing out. You can't be neutral. You got to say, and this is, this is um, for, for everybody, but I, I know you have a lot of white listeners. I know that um, this is, you know, their work. And so, especially for them, you have to stop being neutral. Like, I'm so tired of people who are neutral. I don't want you in my inbox talking to me about how great I am. Now, this goes for the Black folks, too, okay? But, <laughs> um, but in, in general, like, stop being neutral in public and then, and, and, and then convincing yourself that you are anti-racist. You can't be neutral and be anti-racist. Like, those two things don't go together. And yeah. so for that reason, like, I do think it's important to, like, deal with it. And then secondly, I think it's important to deal with it because we have to stop pretending that it's like a small group of people. Right, or exactly. Like, you know, a lot of times we like to say the vocal minority, right? Or like the, you know, they're just loud, not necessarily what everybody believes, but they're just loud. Even if that is true, let's, let's just say it was true, right? That she doesn't represent a lot of people. It doesn't matter because she's loud and they're loud and they have power and they have influence. So it's still harmful, it's still a problem, no matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how asinine we might think it is, no matter how un how uneducated it is, it's loud and it's problematic. And we know there are people sitting on boards and in position of power, positions of power who feel the same way, who think the same things. So, you know, like I said, um, you know, to that article when I when I wrote about it on briefly on social media, you know, it was like, I'm not even gonna pretend that I read the whole thing. I'm not, you know, somebody gonna have to pay me to read that if you want me to right. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that's funny to me. Folk like her fight so hard to keep the privilege they pretend they don't have. Mm -hmm. And that is what is so funny and so ironic about it. And so I jokingly said, you know, um, thank you for the validation, sis. Because all you're telling me is that the work I'm doing, that the work my people are doing is resonating. All you're telling me is that you feel threatened. And I like when people who don't want to uphold equity and justice feel threatened. Good, yeah. you should, you should. Yeah. And that is why a person like her writes a thing like that, right? Because you know that equity means you might have to work a little harder if other people actually get a chance. You know that equity means that you might actually not have a thing handed to you. And, mm -hmm. and the thing about privileges, and folks say this all the time, like I don't even feel like it should have to be repeated so much. Saying that a person has privilege is not saying that they've never done a thing in their life. It's not saying that they have no talent. It's not saying that they, but what it is saying is that there are certain battles you never have to fight. 
There are certain things that you have access to that you didn't do anything to gain access to. And you need to be aware of those things. Equity means that, yes, we need to talk about Black folk more. Equity doesn't mean equality that's not the same thing it doesn't right. mean equity and, and equal aren't the same thing and folks get that confused because some folks might need more of a boost than others because mm -hmm. of years and years of inequity and injustice you know we're not all starting in the same place so justice and equity require that we amplify certain people and certain conversations and if that makes you uncomfortable then inherently first of all you're not a good person i don't i don't care like that's another thing for me and maybe my message won't resonate with everybody i am not out here to convince anybody particularly white people that they are good people that's not sure. my job sure and, sure and, and there's too much that i have to battle every day to spend my waking moments wondering how i can make white people feel good about themselves yeah that's because labor that doesn't lead us to the you know to the goal it doesn't. And at the end of the day, they're the only people who haven't had to come up in a world where they were made to feel bad about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a point that's made in that article, but that that's made, you know, throughout the, the ecosystem is, you know, platforming the one or two that have made it as a means of debunking the existence of sexism or racism in, in these systems. Uh, what role do you think the beneficiaries of these systems uh, play in these conversations or what responsibilities do they have? Because look, we're not saying that no one has ever made it. Okay. There have been some folks that have made it, but there's still a very, very slim minority. And they're used again as a tool to try to debunk so many of these conversations. So first of all, like stop talking about the exception as if they are the rule. Mm. That's number one, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there were historically black colleges and universities being built during slavery, right? Yeah. People were, black people in America were going to college and then leaving college and having careers and building lives while other black people in America were still enslaved. Does that mean racism didn't exist in 1860? Right. No, of course not. It means that in spite of racism in spite of inequity or injustice in spite of oppression black people have always found a way to excel to build to grow um and so you know it, it's it's you can make that argument with any kind of oppression i say i say often like all oppression looks the same because mm -hmm. you you will always be able to find parallels in any space you know it's kind of like that argument of like when we talk about how race intersects with class and, uh, and things like that um when folks say well look at this person made it out the hood mm -hmm. you know so why can't every they're the exception but if you want to it's, it's like you would have to be so racist to believe that all all the other black people are just lazy or just exactly. not right, smart, right. not mm -hmm. hardworking enough, right? You would rather make that argument than acknowledge the fact that racism and barriers exist. Because if you are telling me that the classical music world is not racist, if you are telling me that systemic racism isn't a thing that exists, then what you are telling me 
What you are absolutely telling me is that you believe that black people just aren't working hard enough. And I'm sorry, but I know too many talented, hardworking, degreed black people to ever believe that, right? So when we talk about the black folk who have quote unquote made it, pathways look different for everybody. Some of those people uh, may have had a uh, family support, may have had the financial support, like from their from from being from childhood, may have had community support, church support is often very important. Yep. Like they may have had pathways, they may have had patrons. They may, there are so many different things that may have that may have contributed to that. Some of the black folk in opera who have made it are folk who were just discovered. They know it, and we know it. Folk who got lucky, folk who had some kind of exceptional talent folk who somebody heard their their speaking voice and said you should be singing it can be any of those things right but I, I say often like there are so many exceptional black people who don't get those chances but more importantly black people shouldn't have to be exceptional to get mm -hmm. them right mm -hmm. because let's not pretend that every white singer who's made it to the metropolitan opera is exceptional we know that's Period. not true. <laughs> we know it's not true. Yeah. So I'm not, and I'm not arguing for anybody to not be their very best. I'm of not course, arguing right. against, you know, the idea of black people being excellent and working hard. But what I'm saying is that it is inherently racist for any person. And let me tell you, I've heard this argument from black people too. Sometimes from well-meaning black people who are not thinking about what they're saying because they're too busy trying to defend their own privilege and tokenism. Mm -hmm. But we can have that conversation in a minute if you want to. Um, <laughs> So I've heard this argument, you know, from different people that you just got to work hard. You just need to go out here and grind. You just need to. And what you are saying is so inherently racist and so inherently terrible. And it's actually much more insidious than what it sounds like on the surface. And, and I think sometimes people don't understand that. But impact is so much more important than intent. You got to think about what you say before you say it, especially in this world today, because one thing that is more frustrating than anything in the world is that is when folk who think they are a part of the struggle and folk who think they are doing the work and are part of the fight are saying things that are actually hindering the work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. if I'm out here saying, look, let's look at the metrics. Let's look at the policies. Let's look at what we can do to change these things that hinder people. And you're saying, well, I did it. So why can't you come on? Yeah. And then if you actually start to have the conversation with folk about some of the pathways they may have had, or the things they may have, you know, been able to encounter by, by chance, even sometimes that others didn't, and then people want to pretend they're offended, right? They want to act like you've 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 offended them or you've insulted them. And it's like, no, it's it's no, right? But we're all we're all gifted in certain ways. We all encounter different things, we all walk different paths, and it all looks different for different people. I don't believe that I made it to college because I'm smarter than every black person who did not. And that's not to say every person needs to go to college, but I'm just saying as an example. Like, so why would you feel like because you made it to any you know, into an A house, quote unquote, or you've had an international career or whatever the case may be, that it's because you are somehow better or, you know, than any other person. That's not the case for white people. And it's not the case for black people either. So that's why those arguments are so ridiculous because it's like, yes, kudos to those people 
who were able to make a pathway for themselves, usually with help, because none of us are doing this alone. Um, kudos to those people. Like we're, we're always cheering them on. That's always the goal. You know, anything that I've accomplished in my life, I hope there are folks, you know, cheering me on as I'm always cheering folks on. Like, you know, you hear folks saying I'm rooting for everybody black. I'm not actually rooting for everybody black. I'm rooting for everybody black. That's really rooting for everybody. Black. <laughs> Let me clarify that. Like I'm rooting for, uh, if you're rooting for gay yep. black and trans black and like everybody black, women who are black, you know, children who are black. If you're rooting for everybody black, then I'm rooting, you know, for everybody black. But yeah, um, everybody yeah, people with different abilities who are black. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm legit. I'm out here for all of us, um, even within even within our field, right? Because we all have different abilities and we all have different understandings and experiences, even within our field. So. Let's never, um, those arguments also, not to belabor this point, but those, those arguments also create unnecessary division among us, yeah. right? Yeah. So buying into those really stupid and racist arguments create unnecessary division among us. Because at every level of this thing, we out here rooting for each other. Don't let it ever be said that Black folk are not out here supporting each other. That is a lie. You know what I'm saying? Watch a black singer go viral singing classical music on on social media and see how black folk who ain't ever been to an opera in their lives go crazy for it, right? Because there are so many racist ideas about who we are and what we think and what mm -hmm. we know. Like we my, all of my my support and my lifting has come from black people and I'm so very grateful. So let's not um, perpetuate those lies and those ideas that divide us that make it seem like um, a small amount of us succeeding means that the rest of us just need to work harder. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. When you yeah. don't acknowledge systemic racism, then what you're saying is you don't believe black people do enough or work hard enough, or you believe that black people are the problem, you know, and that that's problem. So that tune by Adia Victoria is called South Gotta Change. That's one that you brought in, I think you said back in Opus 93. That's right. Um, one of the things, you know, one of the reasons I was so happy to bookend my conversation with Brittany McNeil with music by Adia Victoria, because there's so many applications when you just look at her story and where her story is right now as a woman of color working within uh you know that sort of musical aesthetic and the industry of it that classical leg of american music american uh classical music what we affirm anyway uh one of the things that i, I wanted you to speak to you know for folks listening who may not be as familiar uh, with what she's doing one of the things that i got into with uh Brittany was the idea that hard work 
isn't enough or a lack of hard work, you know, isn't the reason for some people to make it in certain positions. We talk about folks who, you know, uh, the anomalous people who make it to the Met or make it to here or there. And people, you know, it's so easy to just say, well, they worked really hard, but there's so much more there. Adia Victoria is someone who has worked extremely hard and that has not always been enough for her. That's right. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, as you see her name for Magnolia Blues start popping up all over, I'll, I'll bet you a dollar right now that she's going to end up on NPR Tiny Desk. Okay. What do you want to bet? I would love to see it. But um, uh, what blows me away about this release, I, I, I've been following her on social media for a little while, and she was sort of teasing all the, the work that she was doing yeah. during COVID. She was, you know, really grinding it out. And now she's getting all of this notoriety. And the most uh, ironic thing about it was she talked about on her Twitter feed about the day that that dropped, she was getting ready to go into her shift at Amazon at four in the morning. Yeah. And trying to, yeah. And trying to be there, get there on time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, this is going on in addition to whatever other work she's got to do to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I think about when it comes to Adia Victoria, and again, some of the things that I was talking about with Brittany, talent is not the issue or a lack of talent out there has not been the issue. And I know that for the past several weeks, especially on social media, I've been shooting shots at uh, fellowship programs within Western classical music. The idea that we have to really train you know, uh, people so that the, the crop of, you know, diverse whatever's are there for, for, for the different legs of the industry. Has that, you know, has your perspective evolved on that at all? What you know, especially thinking about, again, Adia Victoria and all these folks in Western classical, these black folks, these women trying to, uh, get in. I don't think that lack of talent is a thing. I don't, I don't, I think it's great that more people, you know, there, there are efforts to train more people for, for certain parts of the industry, but the, the folks are there. The talent is there. It's just that we're at our part-time jobs or, you know, like a Dia Victoria or, or, or working on the Her outside full-time or, job. Or at that time. Sure. You know, yeah. but so, yeah, I, I wonder if your, you know, perspective has um, e- e- evolved on that. The idea that a lack of talent not only is that not the issue, but it's never really been the issue. I think the fact that we have so many different ways for people to record and distribute their music now. Yeah. Thank that, goodness, right? That we're going to see a lot of people that are high quality talent that didn't have access or yeah. that didn't have the time to go out and get noticed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe these podcasts, Rissy Palmer's Color Me Country podcast yep. would be another great place to start. Yep. Yeah, that's actually a radio show, technically. It's not uh, a podcast. Yeah, sorry about that. Yep. But, um, uh, and look at all the people that are winning awards by recording an album in their closet. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into the fourth movement, you know, just, and, and maybe this could be a, a nice little bridge conversation, Brittany affirmed that we have to stop being neutral. We have to stop pretending that there's a neutral stance. And I really dug in and tried to think, and maybe you can think of something, but thinking about uh, issues that I feel safer being neutral on, but I feel like I always challenge myself to not take that neutral stance, to really do the reading and the research and having the conversations that I need to do to make some, you know, at least seemingly informed opinion on things. What, what are your thoughts on the idea that we have to stop being neutral, especially in conversations of race and how they apply to our different 
parts of the world, our different fields. I was more moved by her comment, get used to being uncomfortable. Yeah. Get you. Yeah. Yeah. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Is, is that a, okay? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, sitting here on this podcast is, is not always a comfortable position sure. for me. Sure. And there's loads of people that'll <laughs> let me know, let me know that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, they'll remind you. But where what's going to happen if we if we don't is there any progress is there any change right right i mean and for what it's worth it's not always comfortable here for me you know to actually press upload you know on on tuesday night you know and i'm on here cussing and and calling people out fair but you seem to be more comfortable being uncomfortable than i do at this point well, you know, we you're more used to it, perhaps. I mean, one of the lyrics in the uh, in the Lauren Hill uh, verse on the Nas track is I've spent too many years living uncomfortably. I feel like that's a story that so many of us can speak to just code switching or, or bending ourselves in a way to fit into a part of the machine that is not comfortable. But, you know, a, a way in which we feel like we have to be. So th- I feel like that's where my practice comes from. Anyone, you know, when, when it comes to mm. being uncomfortable. All right. Well, I know people are waiting on us to talk about Heather McDonald. So let's go ahead and get into this fourth movement. We're going to. So, you know, we've been getting into the triloquy movement, the fourth movement with a trill from the repertoire. Uh, one of the pieces that Heather McDonald speaks to in her very long two part essays is Mozart's magic flute. So I found a nice little vocal trill in there. This, uh, the character, of course, is the queen of the night. It, the uh, the aria is called Ozitra Nietzsche. This is performed by Sabine Deville at the end of Ozitra Nietzsche by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. <laughs> I've seen, I've played this opera, I think, four times, four or five times. I've watched it from the audience, I think, about three times. And the first time I watched it from the audience, you know, when I'm actually paying attention to what's going on stage and not my part, you know, on the bassoon, it's the first, it was that aria that impressed me the most. People mm-hmm. know the uh, the Dehole Roche, you know, right. the, the famous aria sung by the Queen of the Night, but the vocal coloratura acrobatics you have to do there, the twists and trills, if, if you can really sing that, you out here singing, yeah, you know. So, 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 you know, again, shout out to that piece of music, really wanting to decolonize and diversify what we call classical music does not necessarily mean we want to throw it all away because there's Mozart and, and all this stuff stuff that I love, you know, but there has to be an application. It it has to make sense, especially if we're going to foreground it, especially if we're going to put it before, you know, music that really speaks to us and our sensibilities and our culture. All right. Heather McDonald. So I was sent the article. I mean, Scott, 10 minutes after we were done recording last week. Oh, I thought we were still rolling when it Mm -mm. came in. No, we were, we were like, you were editing and and putting some, some stuff on it, but it came out and I was like, okay, whatever. After the fourth person sent it to me, I skimmed and I saw my name. I saw my very own name in this article. So you know what that means? The work is getting out there. The work is getting out there, and this is a consequential part of the ecosystem. I, you know, I, I want to start by saying that to anyone who feels like I might have felt a way about being named in this thing. 
I appreciate it. I was affirmed by being in there and, you know, her quote and what I said about handle, um, go look it up. If you don't know, you know, folks are so quick to ask for a source when it's something that they don't think is true. You know, we don't ask for a source when we're talking about while we're programming concerts the way we are or X, Y, and Z. Right. But you know, that that's, that's a side conversation, but I just first and foremost wanted folks to know that I, I was affirmed in being named there. Okay. Let's get into just a couple of the things. I, I don't want to go through this point by point because it's very long. I will link them. You know, I'm not going to be one of those people to try to brush it on. I will link them in the description. We transitioned with some magic flute. So one of the allegations that she makes in um, part two of this article is that the character Monostatos in the magic flute, the way that the librettist writes him, you know, this black character to sing about how shameful it is for him as a black person to, you know, want to kiss or, or be in yeah. love with. Uh, You've Pamina. talked about this before too. Yeah. This yeah. white character, you know, and, uh, and, and all that sort of thing, you know, so, um, and she cites that as, you know, not, not really impactful or something that isn't really important enough to really deem as racism and, and X, Y, and Z. Okay. Do you not contextualize that? Well, let's talk about that specific. Do you specifically, do you not contextualize a character singing those things as a librettist being racist? Do I? Yes. Is that, is that not an example of classical Western classical music's racism? This, this character in this very, very famous opera singing about, you know, the things I, I, I was just talking about. See, for me though, the thing is, is that, there are people who write plays and libretti that can write a character like that and not be a racist themselves. Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll take that argument. In... But at the time... Yeah. Yeah. I'm, that seems pretty overt to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me fucking too. At the time. Yes. That, that, that is an example of classical music's racism. And when we, when we try to set that aside as something that's not all that important or, or we're making a big deal out of it, we're getting to the point to where we're creating gradations of racism, like levels of right. racism. It's like so many white people need to hear the N-word to be able to cite racism, okay? And I feel like this, that's one of the things that in Western classical music, we can really leave the charge in naming these things as being as racist as the Jim Crow era, as racist as anything else. You know, again, going back to Brittany, one of the things that she talks about is it's so easy for us to say, oh, well, they were a product of their time and X, Y, and Z. Well, history shows that there have always been some people not being racist, some people doing the right thing across all of history. So I don't think we can even say, um, and I need, I need to look up Mozart's librettist. I'm not thinking of it right now, but there's something wrong with that. And I think the more we have that conversation, the more we need to have the conversation of why are we intentionally ignoring it when we platform operas like that? And what I want to see, okay, is operas that speak to us foregrounding works like the magic flute. Heather McDonald is afraid of that. She's, she's afraid of this attack on the, the Western canon as she knows it and understands it and will, will not really, you know, allow progress to be had. So, you know, my, my point number one is that we can't 
fall into this trap of accepting gradations of racism, accepting something that's a little racist or is racist if, it, if they said it today or wrote it today, but back then it was X, Y, and Z. No, get all of that out of here. I love Mozart just, the, just as well as y'all do, but I like my Mozart without racism. So when it comes to the magic flute, you know, great piece of music. Let's find other things to put in its place. I'm sorry. There's a lot of opera. There's a lot of music out there. Let's do something else. Let's name the racism in that work as just that racist, full stop, no exceptions. Okay. That's point number one. Another thing that I want to get to, we're not going to be here long. Another thing I want to get to in these articles is that Heather McDonald does not understand that we have a classical tradition that isn't being acknowledged all throughout the thing. Um, she's, she's given examples of Javanese gamelan orchestras and, and the groups all around the world that aren't um, crying for diversity. Well, you know, I will point her to the work of John Sopayamanan, you know, talking about post-colonial um, infrastructures and, and countries. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we sort of touched on it, how in Indonesia, you know, uh, post-colonization, they got back to their music. So they did what we're talking about doing now, and they have successfully done it. And that's why she can pull bullshit arguments out like that, because they have, they have achieved post-colonial musical ecosystems over there. Okay. So, you know, that, that for, for folks, you know, reading that article and, and really thinking about what she says and where she's coming from, understand that she does not have the perspective of affirming an American purview of classical music. She is so trapped and entrenched in the whiteness that has protected European classical music in America for over a hundred years that she can't even think outside of the idea of, of something American being something different than European, you know, that's that whiteness coming into play. That's that conservatism coming into play that she just can't as escape herself from. And we all have to think beyond that. We have to think beyond a European definition of what we're doing here in the United States, because all it is is a protection of that systemic racism, that whiteness that has built those barriers around the European art form of Western classical music. And, you know, uh, moreover, created and maintained the predominantly white audiences, the predominantly white orchestras and the nearly all white programming that we have all been subjected to as classical music professionals, you know, over the, uh, over the past little bit. I feel like that, that concept, Scott, is being understood by more and more people. I, I'm not alleging to have come up with the concept, of course. You know, there, there's so many other people who have written and, and spoken on the uh, topic, but, you know, what do you think there is a more effective, maybe a more direct way to just plant the seed in a person's mind of an American classical tradition being different than a European classical tradition? That's just it. It's a whole bunch of unlearning and reeducating yeah. that needs to happen, right? Mm -hmm. That includes all of these musicians and composers that you're talking about that were working at the same time. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm glad this is happening because uh, in one of the articles, I did something stupid and I went into the comment section. What? <sighs> so what do you say to the people who say, well, wait a minute, there aren't white people over here talking about how they're not heard on hip hop stations or 
they're not, you know, being at, they're not at hip hop concerts. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you tell those people that say, well, why are you coming over here and talking about classical when we don't go over there and talk about hip hop? Well, first and foremost, those people are not fucking going to hip hop concerts. They don't know. See, now, now you're getting me upset. Uh, the la- Again, the uh, uh, pre-COVID, the last live concert I went to was Tyler, the Creator. Okay, mm-hmm. he uh, uh, Before him was Gold Link, was one of the openers, and then um, Will Smith's son. What's the man's name? Uh, Jaden. Uh, Jaden Smith was, was the opener. So, you know... Not, you know, not rap, 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 but there was definitely rap and, you know, hip hop and all this. That crowd was mostly white. I, w- I was in the minority there. I went to uh, First Ave to see uh, Tank and the Bangas and uh, Big Frida a couple years ago with Dell. I was in the minority there. So, of course, we live in Minnesota, so it's, it's not a majority black say. place, you know. But the thing is, that is a dumb argument because so many of these hip hop spaces are even predominantly white. Let's look at the um, the way these records sell hip hop is not um uh trapped (laughs) in the bronx or down in north memphis if you're talking about southern rap or um in atlanta or over in uh crenshaw in that area in la you know where these different forms of rap were born it's not like they're trapped there it's a global thing it's white boys in iowa downloading and buying this music it's folks all over the world being impacted by this so the allegation that you know, the, the the flip side doesn't work is problematic in that regard, A, but B, it takes me back to the original point. We don't talk about hip hop as a part of our classical tradition, our classical structure. We talk about it, they talk about it anyway as something separate, despite the fact that it's the number one genre of the world right now, arguably, and B, it wasn't born anywhere else but here it's like again that whiteness just begs them to separate themselves from you know that very american tradition of music but you know i'm glad you bring up the comment section i didn't go in the comment section because i don't need to go in the comment section of that because i I know what they're saying down there that might have been what set me off but I think it's important to have the comment section there because so many people see the rhetoric that Heather McDonald puts out there as something fringe, something on the outside, something to really not be considered. You know, that's not really what the conversation is, but I can't tell. I beg to differ. My argument is that what she's putting out there is more central to the general dialogue and the communities surrounding Western orchestral music here in the United States than not. I mean, do you, you know, looking through the comments and understanding what Heather McDonald is putting out there. Do you think, you know, she is a part of a, you know, small incel of people or, you know, is it closer to being foundational to the structures that keep the status quo going or somewhere in between? Her platform, her platform is pretty established. I did a little bit of uh, research. She's uh, uh, I guess a lawyer that does commentary on politics mm-hmm. for conservative radio and television. Yeah. And I found an article from 2017. The headline was something like, you know, the danger of silencing Heather McDonald. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, I wasn't pulled into the article. I didn't of read course, it. Yeah. But basically what I'm saying is she's got a platform. Oh, yeah. And it's high. And a substantial one. 
one you know one that people know about i was uh shout out to uh, my homie uh, chris horton down in knoxville i was on the phone with him today and i brought up heather mcdonald's name you know talking about how we're going to be getting into this today mm-hmm. he didn't know this article but he's very familiar with who she is sure and you know the the work that she does so you know i'm sorry we cannot sit this to the side like it's nothing this is a real dialogue that's happening and there has to be real life opposition to that dialogue not these secret sort of um incel so-called in the trench i hate when people who are not in the trenches say they work in the trenches uh these so-called in the trenches sort of uh organizing uh, around you know, uh, doing something different. No, this this is something real that needs real opposition. And, you know, I'm so grateful to have a platform to be able to put that out there and for my platform to be um, uh, significant enough for me to be even named by this woman. But let's, you know, as we're, we're running, you know, we're running late as we always do. But, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the final point I wanted to get into, we're not going to talk about this next week. And, you know, I, I didn't want to spend a whole bunch of time, you know, uh, bigging her up, but, you know, the issue of barking back, you know, uh, in part two of the article, Heather McDonald lists all these people who, you know, she reached out to for comment and says they all ignored her or either declined. One person who she did not name um, reached back out after the interview and said, oh, well, actually, can you delete what I said? So I guess they did take the interview and learn more about what she said. A lot of the people talking, you know, and the I put it on my Instagram. I'm not going to look who, who it is now, but a lot of the people that she names, you know, these are major um, orchestra directors. These are people who are very, very significant in the in the classical music ecosystem. People are saying, well, you know, she's a nobody and they didn't know who she was. And, you know, it's unfair for her to say that they were scared and shook because they don't even know you. So why would they uh, respond to the interview? OK, well, we've established that she isn't nobody, that she has a very uh, loyal following, a very significant following that. And, you know, my issue is that the people that I see saying ignore this are folks who are so embedded in the industry, despite your race, despite your gender, so embedded in the industry that you don't actually need the industry to change. If all of the progress that we have made in classical music stops, a lot of these people, I would say nearly all of the people saying ignore her would have careers that continue to thrive, you know, would continue to go on. So when I see these people saying, oh, just ignore her, I see people saying, I've got mine. I have my position in classical music, whatever uh, leg of it it is. So it's not urgent enough to really bother with that. Well, look, I'm sorry to say that we are not on the same team if you have that attitude. I understand that there are a lot of people working on the inside, the idea of working on the inside to create change. I get the concept of that. I don't see the receipts of that. I don't see people turning over tables inside of, of, of these spaces. I don't see people really disrupting or agitating. I see people being present and hoping that their present mani- presence manifests in some sort of change. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts? No, there? I'm just sitting here watching <laughs> watching you go. You know, and I, I, I challenge everyone to think about that. You know, e- even you, Scott, and we have a lot of off-mic conversations about the things that we can do from the outside and in the inside, specifically when it comes to the media leg of classical music. But, you know, I hope that you can at least 
understand the sense of urgency that so many of us sitting on the outside are feeling because, you know, you have to admit, you know, you have been in, in, you know, your part of the industry for so long that you don't necessarily need anything to change. I know that you want things to change and I know that you would benefit from change because, you know, for example, being able to play class American classical music, like Adia Victoria's on your show, you know, would make your job a little bit more, you know, colorful or, you know, I would love to hear those breaks. I would love to hear those radio breaks about about that music, you know, and I'm thinking so far in the future to where we can accept music like that as classical. So I know that you will you would benefit from it. If none of those changes happen, you still have a place in the industry. So, you know, I, I hope that, you know, as someone on the inside, you can, you know, understand where we're coming from when we when we really throw those rocks we're not saying that everyone on the inside i'm not saying i'll speak for myself i'm not saying that everyone on the inside is bad you know everyone on the inside is doing something wrong i'm saying that you have to work extra hard to have the urgency the sense of urgency for those of us who need the change to happen there are folks who just refuse to uh, to stand by you know and and work within the rules to stay in those spaces we want to open it up to where we don't have to follow those rules. And when that happens, everyone will benefit folks on the inside and folks on the outside. I just think it's, you know, a lot of people have dissonance when it comes to their work being able to be used as a reason, you know, for Heather McDonald to make the arguments she makes. And I understand that, you know, divisiveness is a, is a part of the game for folks, you know, on Heather Mc, Mc, uh, McDonald's side of the, I almost say McDowell's thinking about uh, <laughs> uh, 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 coming to America. I understand that uh, divide and conquer is is a tactic. So I, I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to name any names with some of the folks I'm thinking about. And if you are a woman or a person of color who has been accepted into the industry as it is, you have a job to do. OK, you are not in the trenches. You are not someone who is out here scraping for every single thing while trying to make change in this industry. So you have a bigger responsibility. My work, our work, Scott, especially here on Triloquy, can never be positioned, can never be positioned to be a reason for her to allege folks like her to allege that racism in classical music does not exist. OK, you can't say that about Garrett McQueen. You certainly cannot say that about Garrett McQueen. If you know my work, there are people inside people of color on the inside that she points to and says, look, such and such is doing such and such. So how can classical music be racist? That is a bullshit argument. I will affirm that that is a completely bullshit argument. And to those people that she is positioning in that way, you got some work to do. You got some work to do to make sure that she can never position your work or your place in the field in that way again. Otherwise, I'm not sure if we're on the same team. I'm not sure if we have the same goals. In closing here, I think I wrote a, a, a little note here. Oh, yes. There are some people on the inside making some big change. When I think about Triloquy guests uh, from early season two, Stephanie Matthews, I think about the all black woman orchestra that opened up the Grammys in, uh, in 2020. I guess that was early 2020 or 2019. That is somebody working on the inside, making change and doing so unapologetically. So I'm thinking about uh, conductors out there like Anthony Parther, who at every turn makes sure that he knows the ecosystem and the musicians of color that are out there. When I moved to Los Angeles, Scott, 
It was not very long before I was getting an email from someone that I did not know named Anthony Parther offering me gigs and try to get me into the industry. And it is through that that I met many other black musicians. Mm -hmm. I, I did not remember it, but Anthony actually reminded me of when we were on the phone not too long ago, my very first gig with the Southeast Symphony, uh, predominantly black orchestra in Los Angeles, Kalina Bovell was there. Nice. In the violin section, you know, and we didn't even know each other at that point. You know, for folks who don't know, assistant conductor, black woman of the Afro-Latina uh, conductor of the uh, Memphis Symphony Orchestra. You know, people connecting the dots like that, that is working on the inside. Being present in a space is not working on the inside. That's just being present in a space. So think about that. Think about how your work, how your position in whatever field you're in can be contextualized flipped or even used in these arguments? Are you someone who is actively seen as opposition or are you someone who someone can claim is complicit in all of these things? There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. Thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> if you're, if, if you feel like, you know, like they say a hit dog or holler, huh? So keep hollering, but don't holler at me. Holler at that institution you work for. See y'all next week.